1: Hello and welcome to Travel Medicine. As always, I'm your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doc, Dr. J.
0: Heyo, Dr. Santosh here, pediatric infectious disease doc and researcher, coming at you.
1: Well, Santosh, allow me to take a moment to just briefly sip my tea. Mmm. <laughs> Delight.
0: <laughs> Makes for great radio. <laughs> <laughs> Did we just change to an ASMR channel when I wasn't looking?
1: (laughs) No, but I am getting a bit over a cold and trying to use a couple of home-based remedies like tea and matzo ball soup and other things. And it got me pondering.
0: Which are evidence based after they've actually been trialed, you know, with placebo control and all that fun stuff. It turns out that a lot of these old, you know, the tea and the soup and thing are wonderful remedies.
1: Yes. Jewish penicillin, matzo (laughs) ball soup.
0: (laughs) Very nice.
1: It did, however, get me thinking about what a post antibiotic world might look like. How are we going to fight infections? when the infections no longer respond to antibiotics, or in the case of colds, you know, are not bacteria to begin with. For
0: bacterial illnesses, a lot of people contend that we are already in that post-antibiotic world. And But the truth of the matter is, a lot of the stalwarts that we use to fight bacteria that we fought, you know, ever since the discovery of bacteria and antibiotics, They don't work anymore. The newer agents, which were supposed to replace those, they're not working like they used to because of resistance. Um, And this is replicating itself in fungal diseases. Now, just like you said, with viral diseases, we've never gotten a great handle on them. You know, if you want to treat a herpes virus, you can suppress it, but you can't get rid of it. Um, As my mentors once told me, unlike love, herpes is forever. (laughs) (laughs) they had a great sense of humor it was fantastic although that particular one i don't think he was joking
1: great sense of humor thrice divorced
0: there there you go (laughs) happily married to the hospital so it's absolutely true we we're running out of options on antibiotics and we might be coming to a point where stuff that used to kill us you know back on the plains right pilgrim times and expanding into the West before we had any kind of antiseptics, those simple illnesses might come back to start harming us, which is a scary thought.
1: And now that we've terrified you, we should probably mention it's once again an alternate week. And you all know what that means. It's time for another Journal Club! Yay! And this week's theme is going to be the post-antibiotic world. So, as I set down my tea and begin to pick up some soup, let's talk Mm -hmm. about the different kinds of things we've learned about soup from the British Medical Journal this week. Perhaps some anti-malarial soup?
0: (laughs) I love that they still publish this. So the BMJ is actually, it has one of my favorite evidence-based articles of all time, which actually showed that imbibing Chicken soup, and that means homemade chicken soup, not the Campbell's crap, actually does reduce the duration and severity of the common cold by a little bit, not too much, but enough and consistently enough that it had a a really good effect. And now we can, with evidence, recommend chicken soup for the cold.
1: But we've known that for years. I want to know what kind of soup you recommend for malaria.
0: Um, <laughs> hydroxychloroquine I
1: soup broth. There was a screen of traditional Soup broths used across Various cultures in Asia Africa and the Americas mm-hmm. That had been used to treat fevers And a lot of these recipes for soups Had been passed down through family traditions And a couple researchers decided To look for potential Anti-malarial drugs Using a double blind study of recipes. So, before we get into some of the methods, I'm going to bury the lead a little bit and tell you that five of the broths were actually found to inhibit growth of the malarial parasite by over 50%. And (laughs) two of them were comparable to a leading anti malarial drug, dihydroartemisinin.
0: Yeah. (laughs) So, just like you were saying, we're in a post antibiotic era, Josh. So, um, artemisinin-based uh, therapies. <clears throat> artemisins are plant-based compounds which tribes in Africa had been actually used, been using for a super long time, and it was kind of rediscovered. And the reason why artemisinin-based therapies, which are now, of course, made synthetically in order to to treat malaria, um is because we were losing ground on malaria with these quinine-based compounds, which if you remember you know from some of our past conversations, quinine also coming from a plant, right?
1: Yep, so, gin and tonic.
0: Yeah. There you go, gin and tonic. In tonic water, if you look in there, you find quinine. And what ends up happening is the malaria parasite, which is called plasmodium, I love that name, uh, it it reminds me of like there's that like that like like, like a, a live jelly mold just like crawling across you know like something out of goosebumps, and uh, yeah, the quinine used to kill it, and then it doesn't kill it anymore because of resistance, um, specifically Plasmodium falciparum, and then we had to expand to hydroxychloroquine. Well, chloroquine first, and then resistance, and hydroxychloroquine, and these compounds based off of quinine were just running out. They weren't working and they weren't working. And enter these artemisinin, which were rediscovered from ancient cures. And then the molecule was purified and turned into a drug. But this is a very potent antimalarial. And right now, WHO, CDC, in places where artemisinin are Available, they are actually the go-to treatment for moderate to severe uh, malaria.
1: So let's talk about the methods of this study because they are both scientifically sound and adorable.
0: <laughs> I really love that this was the, in the archives of Diseases in Children: The Screen of Traditional Soup rots with Reported Antipyretic Activity.
1: Yeah, so soup samples were collected by children from their families across uh, North Africa, Europe, and the Middle East. Mm -hmm. And these children obviously came from a variety of ethnic backgrounds. They transported the soup to school in 15 milliliter plastic tubes for processing after a healthy consumption slash taste test, data not shown. (laughs) Each sample was frozen on arrival at school, then batches were thawed, centrifuged for about five minutes, and sterilized with a little filter for transport to a lab. Um, And -hmm. then, you know, they collected a total of 60 broths using these. Now, while recipes themselves were not directly collected, discussions about the content of each soup broth found no consistent anecdotal pattern in the inhibitory potential of samples. So there was no one common ingredient across all the soups. They were all clear broth based soups and many were noted as being vegetarian chicken or beef based, which I think covers all the bases. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, So
0: depending on what you love to eat.
1: Notably, there was no overlap between samples that had the ability to block asexual reproduction versus transmission blocking of the virus. Uh, which is consistent because they both have very different cellular biology at work in those life cycle stages. So these soups yeah. were affecting the malaria parasite across multiple parts of its life cycle.
0: Yeah, I I really love that that. And by the way, you know this was all in a petri dish. Um, it wasn't in an animal model or in vivo. They actually. You know they they processed the soup in a certain way such that it wouldn't just you know swamp out the parasites in the petri dish, but they added those soups into the growth media um, where Plasmodium is is cultured in a uh, a red blood cell bath, believe it or not. So literally in a vial of blood, and then they just went ahead and added it straight in, and you know you had. You know some whatever odd recipes. Uh, Forty-six, I think. How many? How many recipes total did we get? Josh? So fifty-six. Well,
1: there were fifty-six, but a couple of them may have been from siblings. As samples sixteen and thirty-six came yeah. from the same household, and in fact yeah. were found to be the same soup. It was a red yeah. cabbage based <laughs> soup.
0: There you go. Red cabbage is fantastic. So, yeah. so they used dihydroartemisinin as a control, of course, because DHA, you get complete inhibition of, uh, of parasites that are still not resistant. So susceptible parasites. And so they compared, you know, water control where you got complete growth all the way to dihydro- dihydroartemisinin, which gave you zero percent growth and i said well how many of these gave you like less than 50 percent growth and josh they actually isolated five of these soups that actually suppressed growth by greater than 50 percent and, and it was replicable it was really really cool
1: those grandmas knew what was what
0: yeah, and of course they acted much much better on the asexual blood stages. That's the time when malaria is replicating in your bloodstream uh, and and just dividing, as opposed to uh, when they're turning into male and female gametocytes or you know single-celled sexual stages and then actually merging and performing chromosomal crossover. That still to this day we have a hard time attacking that particular life stage because they're not not actively dividing and if they're not dividing they're not metabolizing nutrients and in that case they can't uptake a drug in order to poison themselves essentially
1: so there's a couple key parts of this study I'd like to bring attention to one mm-hmm. is as a screening study it was carried out by children which is fantastic yeah. you know this is this is the kind of way you build science literacy and get people engaged like wow mm-hmm. Um, you know, you get a little bit of competition. My grandma's soup is better than yours, grandma's soup, objectively. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, But also, you know, a simple study that can be carried out under pretty much any scientific conditions with bare minimum resources can now lead to future studies examining, for example, these five soups and what they may have in common. And we could find new herbs, Or plants or other compounds to treat future drugs so this is you know the earliest earliest version of research and development for pharmaceutical companies and kids can do it (laughs) right at home with their own recipes
0: i i really do love it i'm right with you now the cool thing here josh is these are all like safe to imbibe compounds right they're food so theoretically, you know, if you grab those five soups by those like five mega grandmas or mega moms or let's face it, it's mothers. It's, you know, you could ask them to, you know, hey, could you could you make these soups? And then you actually could test. Um, You can't test it against placebo because that would be unethical, right? You have to treat someone who has malaria, but you could treat it Um, you could use it as a supplement, as a for instance. So say, okay, I'm going to give you the appropriate anti-malarial, but you, you know, kid number one, you have soup along with it, and you kid number two will give you, you know, like a a regular broth or, you know, that has, that doesn't have all these uh, crazy ingredients in it. Um, And yeah, yeah, you can actually, in small trials, springing from this, you can say, hey, do any of the kids get better faster? Do they get better more consistently? Do they have less severe disease? It, it, it can be really, really cool.
1: So, that takes care of vegetable and maybe animal, but let's talk yeah. about minerals. And the next, the next two studies are kind of attacking infections from different angles. Uh, Santosh, if you had to take a guess, what were the most infected surfaces? in a hospital
0: things that people had on them or just like in the hospital without people around
1: like if you're walking around in a hospital uh just through the casual contact door handles toilet seats um doors fellow Mm -hmm. employees what do you think is walking around with the highest percentage of bacteria sitting around on it
0: anywhere where you have hands touching you're going to have a higher bacterial load. So you think immediately toilet seat, right? Our bums are super dirty. But the truth of the matter is the vast majority of pathogenic bacteria, not just bacteria, but the bacteria that are going to hurt us are passed around from hand to hand. So it's going to be something that you touch. And if it's something that's physically like on the hospital, a part of the building, I would guess things like doorknobs and desk surfaces the, the kind of things where we lay down our hands or we grasp, uh, that kind of a thing. I'd put those ahead of toilet seats.
1: So the winning contenders, in no particular order, are hospital beds and cell phones.
0: Oh, I didn't think of the stuff that you'd bring in with you. I was thinking parts of the building. Yeah. I apologize. But yeah, cell- dude, cell phones are so gross. They're so gross they're covered with the daily stuff that you have you know all over the folks who <laughs> the folks who take their cell phones to the to the toilet and then I don't know what you're doing you know do you put it down before you wipe? I don't know and then <laughs> maybe you wipe and then you say oh okay, I gotta wash my hands but maybe wash my hands before I touch my phone or something like that but the biggest problem Josh is, we are told, especially the front of the screen, that you shouldn't clean these right? You shouldn't use like a window cleaner or something like that on there that's that is a, a an actual cleaner that can get the grime off of there, so your hands just deposit bacteria and deposit bacteria and they never come off. This is the same reason why, by the way, I don't wear a tie because ties never get washed. those and things are so gross. they get
1: terrible reception ha. So let's tackle it from the physician side. Researchers decided to test silver-coated screens to protect cell phones from contamination. So they put like one and of those... And against
0: werewolves.
1: Well, yeah, obviously. that Which was a real problem <laughs> for the werewolf resident.
0: Dude, wouldn't it be hilarious if the werewolf resident felt discriminated against... <laughs> The hospital was like, dude, we're putting in silver surfaces, you know, to actually, you know, repel all the bacteria. And then the guy was like, this is harassment. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, werewolf resident. Come on now. You know, we have to protect our patients. No, man, no, I know why you're doing this. Well,
1: in the hope of reducing personal exposure and transmission. Because we're looking up a lot of things on our phones. We're getting constant pages. There's no way as a doctor in today's world to function without a phone. And Mm -hmm. companies have been turning to new technologies that have microbicidal properties like nanosilver and figuring out how to incorporate them into everyday items. So Alexander McCumber, a PhD student at Duke, ended up testing a silver-coated antimicrobial screen that when tested at day seven compared with day zero and 30 initially showed a significant decrease in the diversity of bacteria on the phone within the first week. By the end of the month, there wasn't really any change in the phone microbiome, but uh, let, let me go into the study a little bit. The researchers enrolled a total of 26 residents because they're the ones running around everywhere and collected initial (laughs) samples from the palm of their hands and the front and back of their cell phones. They then sterilized each phone and gave it a Gorilla Glass screen shield cover uh, with silver built in. And then they sampled the hands and phones again at day seven and day 30. Okay. On day seven, they detected one significant time point with microbial diversity between different samples from the screen side and the back side. So the backside, which didn't have the silver on it actually had more bacteria or greaterly, a greater diversity of bacteria than the front side, which tells you the phone's doing its job. Mm-hmm. And they observed no increase in silver or antibiotic resistance genes for Lausonella, Staphylococcus, Streptococcus, uh, Delftia, and Cutie bacteria, which sounds adorable. <laughs>
0: It is. cutibacterium, bacterium, Josh, um, if, you, if you've if you ever dealt with propionibacterium acnes, which is a skin disease that can colonize prosthetic joints and heart valves and that kind of thing, cutibacterium bacterium is the new taxonomy for propionibacterium.
1: Now, that sounds like we should all be slapping silver onto our phones. However, at day 30, and this is, again, a very small study, the sure. antibacterial coatings showed no difference in bacterial colonies on the front or the back of the phones or the resident's hands. Aww. So no, in- But no influence in silver and antibiotic resistance was observed either. So yeah. we didn't create drug resistance just walking around, but apparently either none of these residents were following good enough hand hygiene to uh, change the diversity of the cell phones, or a screen on your phone, isn't strong enough to completely wipe out bacteria that's transferred around.
0: Yeah. And it's, it's really probably, it's a combination of the two, but I would bet that the second part of that, the latter is a lot more influential than the former. When you are inoculating and inoculating and re-inoculating bacteria on there, you're going to kill the stuff that is in contact with the silver for long enough but the rest of it that isn't quite in contact with the silver it's on the edges away from your silver mesh or screen or anything they're going to be just fine <clears throat> so let's silver is silver is a great me mecha- oh, I'm, I'm sorry Go ahead. yeah silver is a great mechanism because poisoning by metalloids like silver copper mercury in the way back when <laughs> it's really hard to evolve Cellular processes that give you resistance to poisoning by silver, but still allow you to live, if that makes any sense, because these particles just destroy very fundamental interactions of proteins inside of the bacterial cell. Now, the question comes up like, oh, isn't this harmful to human cells or, or other cells that are not bacterial cells? And the answer is yes, but not to the degree that they're poisonous or toxic to the bacterial cells, which is why we can use this kind of technology. So
1: let's stop harassing the werewolf mm -hmm. resident and let's look at hospital beds. So a study from November of 2019, relatively recent, found that having copper hospital beds in the ICU would lead to an average of 95 percent fewer bacteria colonizing the bed than conventional hospital beds and maintained this decreased risk throughout the patient's stay. This came out in applied and environmental microbiology. Hospital beds are among some of the most contaminated surfaces. Uh, Doctors are touching it. Patients are touching it. Family members are touching it, sometimes with gloves, sometimes without. There's codes going on. (laughs) There's spatter. There's sneeze. There's bedpans. Honestly, it's a mess. And despite the best (laughs) efforts by environmental service workers, you're never going to be able to clean a bed often enough nor well enough to get all the colonizing bacteria. Does this increase your risk of infection? Probably not appreciably. However, decreasing the bacteria can only be a better option for us. So new beds incorporating copper surfaces, which have long been known to repel and kill bacteria, are starting to become available. Now, before I let Santosh geek out on the bed aspect of this, (laughs) copper's antimicrobial properties actually go all the way back to ancient India and China when drinking water was often stored in copper vessels to prevent illness. So we know copper has antimicrobial properties, although it's not being worked into underpants yet like silver is.
0: Uh, (laughs) Did you see the silver underpants that you can find online now?
1: Yep. How to tell uh, how to tell if your significant others a werewolf
0: uh, <laughs> i I actually love these, and the interesting thing is because these guys know how to market they don't talk about oh you're going to be more hygienic or anything they go for the thing that they know people care about, which is smell and they say you'll reduce the bacterial load and therefore the bacteria that tends to break down oils and other compounds to make smelly compounds out of sweat will not be there. I don't know if it really works. Now, interestingly, Josh, the shirts and the underwear for those things, they actually appreciably smell less, but it doesn't do anything for your actual skin or anything like that. So, Well,
1: let's talk about yeah. copper beds. So they compared, yeah. this study compared the relative contamination of just ICU beds that were outfitted with full copper encapsulation, the rails, the footboard, and the bed controls, compared to a traditional hospital bed that's all plastic surface.
0: Not not the mattress, though. No,
1: no, 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 no. The (laughs) bed is is copper encapsulated. Sure, sure. Um, And they compared it to traditional hospital beds that are all plastic surfaces. And they found that about 90% of the bacterial samples taken from the tops of plastic rails had concentrations of bacteria in excess of what infection control was happy, whereas the antimicrobial copper beds showed a 95% decrease in those same contaminating colonies of bacteria. So, Santos, why don't you just very, very briefly explain to the listening audience what's a contaminating colony of bacteria?
0: I, I really love these studies. I really do. It makes me so, so happy. Essentially, you're looking for bacteria that don't belong on that surface in the first place, number one, and number two, have the potential to cause harm. So most of these are going to be bacteria like MRSA or vancomycin-resistant enterococci, and then coliform bacteria like E. coli, which if they get enough colonization onto a patient's skin, especially if that patient is already severely ill or immunocompromised, um, you you basically create a perfect storm for them to get a super infection and stay sick or get even sicker and die. So you do have to parse that out from environmental bacteria, which really won't cause any problems. So that's the main difference between the two. So i really love this study because not only did they use the proper covering and everything for the beds because there have been trials like this josh where they've done like a railing or they've done a single surface or something like that to try to compare one to the other but as you can imagine it takes a little bit more of a money investment to get like the whole bed coated like this so they went ahead and did it they got the whole bed coated they were very good about their sampling methods about using a swab and isolation technique which was very standardized and then looked at the microbial burden but then used statistical analysis to check out the bad bugs versus the good bugs essentially and the pictures i you know i thought were absolutely wonderful on here cuz you know they're not just the bar graphs and things like that on here but they actually showed pictures of where the copper was and then where they swapped and where they sampled from so that everything was really, really standardized. Um, I loved it. It was super, super fantastic.
1: Yeah, so this could hopefully lead to a change where you actually don't need every bed to be covered in copper. Most people are not at significant risk of infection, but in an ICU where you have a lot of people who often are severely immunocompromised for various reasons, this could be an excellent way to save the hospital's money and decrease reinfection and readmission rates.
0: Yep. I see you, Josh. (laughs) I see you.
1: Now, let's talk a little bit about how we're looking for antibiotics that will work in the future. So if you listened to our episodes on the history of antibiotics and their discovery, you know how many crazy stories led to the existence of most of the drugs that we're familiar with today. But you also know that they're really difficult to track down. You could look at plants all your life, and if you're lucky, find maybe one that might have a small effect on one tiny feature of one disease.
0: Wait, even if you're Benjamin Duggar, plant physiologist?
1: Even if you're Benjamin Duggar, plant physiologist.
0: I don't believe it, but go on.
1: So instead, researchers are now beginning to turn to robots and machine learning. Now, this is not AI. Instead, we found a powerful <laughs> antibiotic that kills some of the most dangerous drug-resistant bacteria in the world using rudimentary intelligence with called, <laughs> called deep learning algorithms. Mm, so yes. the drug works in a different way than most of the existing antibacterials we have and is the first of its kind to be found by setting the AI loose on vast digital libraries of pharmaceutical compounds. There's no knowledge here, at least so far, that the robots can use to kill us. (laughs) So,
0: what did they do? (laughs) Researchers
1: trained a deep learning algorithm by feeding the program information on the atomic and molecular features of 2,500 drugs and natural compounds and how well or unwell the substance was at blocking the growth of E. coli. So that's how they trained it initially. They said, let's just take one of the most common bacteria available and teach you all the drugs that work on that and how. Mm -hmm. Once the algorithm had learned what kind of features made for good antibiotics, they then set it to work on 6,000 different compounds under investigation for treating various human diseases. They released it into pharmaceutical Wikipedia cold cases.
0: (laughs) Yeah, all right.
1: So rather than looking for any potential new drugs out of that, the algorithm was taught to focus on compounds that looked effective but unlike any existing antibiotics. So they said, here's all the things that we know work. Take those out of your search parameters and now Mm -hmm. look at what kind of things may work based on the structures you've learned. And this boosted the chance that the drugs would work in ways that bugs hadn't developed resistance to. So this was all performed by researcher Jonathan Stokes, the first author of the study. And he said Mm -hmm. it took about a matter of hours for the algorithm to come up with some promising antibiotics one of which they called Hallison after Hal in the Kubrick film, 2001, a space odyssey, a particularly, <laughs> yeah. potent, particularly lethal, friendly to humans currently.
0: Oh well, uh, yeah. That's the, I can't do that. Dave robot. That I'm sorry, became Dave. self-aware. <laughs> I'm sorry, Dave. Yeah. It's I can't do that. That became aware. And then when Dave was trying to shut it down, it was like, Oh, I'm going to preserve myself and sorry, buddy.
1: (laughs) This is a great use for AI because even if it becomes self-aware, you've basically just turned into, I'm going to help you find new drugs to fight diseases. And I see no way of that going wrong ever.
0: (laughs) Well, okay, John, (laughs) you want me to take over here or you want to do this? No, no, go ahead. Uh, Tell us about (laughs)
1: machine learning. (laughs)
0: <laughs> I I really really love this study. This showed up in the journal Cell and we're talking about some wonderful work done out at MIT. All in all, right? 107 million molecules that were curated from the database. And they were able to find eight antibacterial compounds. I mean, they narrowed it down. They, they said 23 empirically tested predictions from greater than 107 million, and then eight of them that are structurally distant from known antibiotics, which means they don't look like penicillin and they don't look like fluoroquinolones. They're, they're completely different. Now, this I'm is I'm going to briefly weird...
1: interrupt just to say yeah. one of the antibiotic resistant strains Halicin was effective yeah. against was Uh enterobacter, which is, for those Mm. of you in the know, a major problem for vancomycin-resistant enterococcus, or VRE infections.
0: Yeah, enterococcus. Yeah, (coughs) when we talk about our resistant bacteria, gram positives, we talk about two big ones. One is MRSA, which everyone seems to know, and the other one is VRE, where, uh, and these are normal bacteria, MRSA lives on our skin, enterococci live in our gut, and if you just hammer them in with enough antibiotics, they'll become resistant, and then nothing works, so I think this is, this was really cool, they also tested it, Josh, against um, carbapenem-resistant enterobacteriaceae, so things like E. coli and Klebsiella that have devised an arsenal to fight off even our broadest anti Gram negative drugs like meropenem and imipenem for those of you who who use these drugs, um, we tested it against pseudomonas. We what am I saying? These guys tested it against pseudomonas um, and and against Acinetobacter, which is a horrible cause of ventilator-associated pneumonia in the ICU. And, you know, Josh, just for funsies, they went ahead and threw it at tuberculosis.
1: And C. diff.
0: And, And C. diff. And they went ahead and got inhibition, meaning that this compound is exceedingly broad in its activity, Now, the next steps, as everybody knows, is, you know, is it going to work in vivo, meaning in a mouse model, in a human model, without harming the host? And that's another question altogether. But Josh, let me tell you why you shouldn't be afraid. (laughs) I'm not. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) This is not generalized intelligence, right? This is not, I'm going to formulate a question, and then I'm going to implement a way to find the answer and then i'm going to find the answer and then i'm going to implement the answer that's that's generalized intelligence a robot that can do multiple kinds of things using problem solving and cognition and recognition this is a simple iterative program where you train it with the data that you have okay and then based on the training you can tweak a few of the you know kind of capabilities of the machine to say i want you to ignore these aspects i want you to pay attention to these aspects and then based on what we've already shown you and all right i'm going to feed in 10 to the 8th i'm going to i'm going to feed in 107 million uh different compounds and i want you to tell me which of these will work out and then unfortunately computer brain that's the best that you can do. From that point on, I got to take this compound and I got to test it in my Petri dish and in my mice. And I have to find out whether or not you were correct. And that was the beautiful part of the study in Cell is they moved forward. They actually tried it in the Petri dish. They tried halicin in mouse infections. And they found that they were actually able to reduce uh, colony-forming units of bacteria per gram in mice uh, when giving them halicin. And they had like a mini safety profile. And they showed cleanly that if you have a learning algorithm like this, you can take a massive, massive, massive data set of compounds, these molecules that... You know, we we literally just have sitting around and we don't know what they do. And you can feed it into these programs and you can get back a workable data set that you can then test in the field and find new antibiotics that way. This is absolutely brilliant because the speed at which we can now discover new drugs has been ramped up to ludicrous speed.
1: Ludicrous speed.
0: (laughs) They've gone to plaid.
1: So humans and robots working together in a wonderful partnership, each serving as a check on the other's inabilities.
0: Not a robot.
1: <laughs> Thank you, Janet. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but guys, by the way, all of you, if if you love what you hear from Josh and I, uh, they're not a sponsor, but go watch The Good Place. That's all I'm going to say about that.
1: Yep. Nobody pays us squat.
0: No. <laughs> Uh,
1: They are welcome to, though. We have a Patreon page.
0: Yeah, Michael, sure. Give us a call. We've got so many ideas.
1: Uh, So (laughs) for the next story, it's not technically an infection-fighting discovery, but I did think it was a super neat article. It's more neuroscience-based, and it's a method of helping people who have suffered brain injuries and specifically inflammation from brain injuries. So there's a few infections that can lead to inflammation in the brain. A lot of the encephalitis ones that we don't really have good treatments for right now. And this study, which came out January 10th in the uh, Annals of Neurology.
0: Uh Annals.
1: I I specifically went with that pronunciation. (laughs) um show that injecting a swarm of nanoparticles into the blood of somebody who has suffered a brain injury may one day help to limit the damage and swelling by distracting the immune cells from rushing to an injured brain. I love this. But let me give you some of the details and then then I'll give you my hot take on it. Oh yeah. So, John Kessler, a neurologist at Northwestern right here in Chicago. Uh, show that all the data shows that they are likely to be safe and they're likely to work, but they have not yet tested. So after an injury, whether it's from a football concussion or a slip and fall in the bathtub or potentially an inflammatory brain disease, the brain tissue can swell as all the immune cells flock to get to the damage. And this is dangerous because the brain can get bigger, but there's only so much space in the skull. So the pressure on the brain can be deadly and lead to strokes and loss of function. But in a mouse study, two to three hours after a head injury, which I can, which sounds terrible, but I'm just picturing them whacking the mice on the head with teeny little hammers. (laughs)
0: There's actually, it's, there's a standardized model of head injury in mice and um, it's, it's not fantastic but yeah luckily we anesthetize all these mice before actually performing the head
1: with teeny little hammers
0: yeah it's a 240 gram weight that's dropped from a distance of 1.4 meters mr
1: sandman bring me a dream
0: or about four wheat, uh and you put a Foil over the head so things don't.
1: Slide. So but, foil yeah, over their heads so the government can't yeah. beam messages to them. Oh, um,
0: no, no, so, it's yeah, it's but it's a standardized model of brain injury.
1: Right, tiny hammers. So two to oh. two to three hours. Well,
0: more like tiny anvils. Like you'd go with like you know the little wily coyotes. Yeah, little wily coyotes. Oh,
1: <laughs> my heart. <laughs>
0: Uh, Yeah, I know.
1: (laughs) Two to three hours after getting tiny little acme anvils dropped on them, (laughs) mice mice received injections of biodegradable particles made of an FDA-approved polymer that's used in dissolving sutures. So the ones that don't have to be taken out, they just break down on their own. Interestingly, instead of rushing toward the brain, immune cells... Known uh, a specific kind of immune cell called monocytes, which are like the Pac-Man cells of the body, looked
0: first, no, waka waka, waka, waka waka.
1: looked first at these nanoparticles rather than at the inflammation. They said, "Well, this is bad, but that's for it." And they went straight for the nanoparticles, and that meant that they didn't cause the inflammatory cascade in the brain and actually delayed onset of brain inflammation by just going after these distractor particles. So they engulfed them, and they got packed off to the spleen for elimination. And because the nanoparticles are quickly taken out of circulation, what with being eaten by monocytes and all, the researchers Mm -hmm. injected the mice again at one and two days later to see what would happen. So mice that got the nanoparticles actually fared on the whole better following brain injuries than mice that didn't, which is not as intuitive a result as you might think.
0: Yeah because it you know you're putting a foreign particle in there. you would think this was cause more irritation?
1: Yeah, where instead it actually it's it's the principle of if you break your arm, you pinch like your leg just to distract you. It's a distracting tactic that worked <laughs> pretty well. Now even cooler, 10 weeks after the injury, the damage spots themselves were only about half as big in the mice that did receive the treatment, suggesting damage was stalled just by getting these nanoparticles. So this brain swelling and scarring were less severe. Their vision cells performed better in response to light, and behavior improved, not because they were terrified of having more acne anvils dropped on them, but (laughs) they were able to better walk across a ladder and perform some fine motor functions, uh, almost as if they underwent mouse physical therapy post stroke which none of them did.
0: Right, yeah. These mice weren't rehabbed or anything like that. The control mice, which were the ones who were injured but that didn't receive the nanoparticles, were more severely, you know, kind of impaired uh, after the after the fact than the ones that had received the IMPs. And this was without helping them at all. They, they just... They got the injury, they were allowed to just hang out for a bit to repair, and then they were told, made to, asked to uh, walk across a, a ladder rung, and then we shined some light in their eyes to see if their eyes and the visual parts of their brain cortex were receiving the signals properly.
1: Now, this is a little different than what traditionally is considered nanotherapy. Most of the, these were just bare particles. They just threw the little polymers Mm -hmm. in there and let them be, you know, a sexy distraction like the woman in the red dress in the matrix. That's it. (laughs) However, sure. (laughs) However, usually what happens is you put these polymers in and you tether them to drugs or other cargo that you want to deliver somewhere. Then the nanoparticles dissolve and leave the rest behind. If we now know that these will be initially targeted, you can look at infections, or immune system or autoimmune diseases, where the body targets itself. Get it to be distracted while you deliver an autoimmune suppressing drug. So there are potential treatments here for some of the autoimmune diseases in a grand timescale moving forward, and that includes things like maybe one day diabetes or lupus, uh, any or. If we understand it better, maybe even things like Alzheimer's or Parkinson's, if there's anything that it has an inflammatory component that can affect brain function, this study may indicate that you can buy yourself time to preserve and perhaps even one day restore function based on what is going to be a lot of science left to come.
0: For everybody who's listening out here saying, you know, what's going on? Why do our bodies do this anyway? And the short answer is that evolution is dumb, right? Our immune systems, our inflammatory systems for millennia of life have been geared towards preventing infection, cutting off bleeding, preserving what tissue that you can. But causing collateral damage in the meanwhile, because there aren't really super sophisticated mechanisms to kind of get the best of both worlds. And a lot of what happens, you know, if you break an arm or something like that, is that the repair happens later and the scar tissue is broken down and replaced by normal tissue. The problem, as you all know, is that in the brain, you can't just replace a neuron. Uh, not not super easily for everything that we know. So uh, yeah, the, the inflammatory cells come in because they say, okay, there's damage here. We have to patch it. Otherwise, there's going to be more damage and an ingress point for things like bacteria. They're not actively thinking this, but y'all get the point. <laughs> so
1: Now, humans are a little different it, from mice and the way we process brain injury is not an exact parallel. For example, it's yeah. not just an immune response. You can also get... Toxic substances that accumulate and spread to unaffected areas, you can have, you know, a much larger proportion of bleeding that you're not going to, you know, if that's just as bad as having inflammation. So there's still a long way to go. But the fact that this showed improvement for both traumatic brain injury and even seem to ease signs of inflammatory bowel disease and West Nile virus show that there's a broad range of applications if we can get this technology perfected.
0: Yeah, all that wasn't in this paper, but it was referencing it, and I, I love it because it parallels something that we've learned in recent times, which is probably something that you use, Josh, if you work in neurointensive care and you used like a cooling protocol for heart attack or stroke uh, patients. The
1: Arctic sun.
0: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so this is something which kind of functions on the same principle, instead of giving a distraction you know, a bunch of nanoparticles, you just cool down the system. So those inflammatory processes happen much, much more slowly and in a much more ordered fashion so as not to cause so much destruction. So all of these principles work on that same kind of thing that, hey, listen, there are doctors and nurses here to help heal, you know, the brain injury. So there's no need for the immune system to to go, you know, apeshit trying to fix stuff. So I I love this principle. It's super cool. It's very straightforward and simple. And just like you said, I love the broad appeal of the number of applications that it has because really anything where you have neuroinflammation, you can apply this principle.
1: Now our final story is gonna be just a real, real quick update on COVID 2019. The coronavirus. The coronavirus (laughs) That's sweeping the nation. Not ours, so... But...
0: Yeah. (laughs) Sorry, people who are listening in foreign lands.
1: A group of researchers (laughs) has figured out the molecular structure of the spike protein that this coronavirus is using to invade human cells, which opens up the door to development for a vaccine... And most of the time, all coronaviruses invade cells through a spike protein. And if you're thinking like a volleyball spike, sure, that works. But those (laughs) proteins take on different shapes in different coronaviruses. And Mm -hmm. figuring out the shape of a given coronavirus one is figuring it helps you learn how to target the virus. So this particular one was discovered by Jason McClellan at the University of Texas at Austin. And... Yeah. And I believe that one of our occasional co-hosts, Dr. Biyu, the neuroscientist with the NIH, is off to Korea as we speak to further <coughs> study the COVID-19.
0: Yeah, she's of course very very intrigued from her standpoint to see if this respiratory virus has any neurological issues, and then from a public health standpoint, what she can do. But this type of structural biology is absolutely wonderful. Once you have the structure of a particular protein, you can figure out the antibody structure that can bind to it and thus inhibit it. You can find small molecule inhibitors that can wrap it up so that that spike protein can't engage with the cellular protein on the host side so that the virus can enter. And most important of all for the long-term prevention is you can potentially purify this protein if it is antigenic enough because it's so unique to each coronavirus and you can use this component Uh, for either designing or directly turning into a vaccine.
1: So again, the flu is still killed more people than the COVID 2019, but
0: it's still killing still. Yes.
1: But it is picking up. It seems to be picking up its infectious spread. So we figured we'd update you. Uh, I still don't think it is, Enough to worry about if you're not immunocompromised to begin with. But there's a lot of great studies out there that are, you know, gonna hammer home that point. And you can listen to our recent episode.
0: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Just please, please, people, get your flu shot. The influenza virus, influenza A, influenza B are much, much more deadly than coronavirus. The rest of it, okay, just really simple. If you feel sick, stay at home if you can, wash your hands, wash your hands, and then sneeze and cough into your elbow, and
1: that's it. And get plenty of fluids like tea and soup. (laughs) Mm, And soup. mm, Delicious.
0: (laughs) Not a sponsor.
1: (laughs) (laughs) This week brought to you by Tea and Soup. (laughs)
0: <laughs> wouldn't it be awesome it's just... what corporate entity sponsors you tea and soup <laughs>
1: uh,
0: that would be so much fun So let's make a company called tea and soup Josh.
1: <laughs> so this week's just the tip we haven't done one for a while I was just out in Yosemite and that's where I caught this cold which I am now treating with our sponsor tea and soup Mm. And for those of you, most of the time, if you go in, you head down to the valley of Yosemite, the, the Awani Valley, uh, which has a bunch of wonderful trails, including the hike up to Vernal Falls, the Mist Trail, very steep, very beautiful. Also, for people living in a flat state, mountains may pose some challenges to your cardio workout. Uh, that's that's but fun. the scenery is gorgeous. However, this time we chose to stay in Wawona, California, at the south end of the park that has access to Badger Pass with some light skiing and uh, cross-country skiing and snowshoeing, as well as the famous Sequoia Grove, uh, Mariposa Grove. So lots of delightful nature and trails and just on the whole, a very soothing place to visit. Not every vacation destination has to be action-packed and filled. Sometimes, folks, Get yourselves out into nature, look at something green, and take a few deep breaths.
0: I can say now, with uh, evidence to back me up, that a weekend in nature, just away from an urban setting, and especially what you did, Josh, is you lost phone reception for a bit.
1: (laughs) The entire Um, weekend, in fact.
0: It was, yeah, yeah. And, And that seems to have just as good of an effect as if you take one of those, like, two week vacations to decompress and unload. So the more that you can get in to get to quiet wooded secluded areas with you know a little bit less technology, just every now and again. it doesn't have to be every stinking weekend, but it's it's good for you, it's good for you psychologically and uh, yeah, and we all know that'll also help boost your immune system and like for everybody except Dr. Josh somehow, who managed to catch uh, a URI from a sequoia? Well,
1: I caught it from one of my hiking buddies.
0: Oh, oh no. And we were pushing ourselves sequo-
1: pretty hard on those trails. but yeah. <laughs> But I stand yeah. by, I came back feeling <laughs> infinitely more relaxed and only slightly more congested.
0: <laughs> and the cold's going to go away, poor guy, you know. It's like, hey, you know what, this week, I'm going to say this this week for, uh, you know, send us your love and your comments and everything, but let's get some, you know, some soup recipes for Dr. Josh. He's an amazing cook.
1: Oh, send Uh, me your soups. That's how we get sponsored.
0: (laughs) Send him your (laughs) soups. I'm trying to do something for your health, you mangy capitalist.
1: <laughs> Sponsor us with your soup. Post, po- as always, we love to hear your comments, questions, feedback, and soup recipes. You
0: idiot. <laughs> <laughs> you deserve it. You deserve every sniffle you <laughs>
1: jackass.
0: <laughs> Last time I tried to help you. <laughs> I, hey,
1: I appreciate that. I want them I want them commenting on our Patreon, our Twitter, our Facebook, our Instagram yeah. with all their recipes. Sponsor <laughs> us with can't your stop soup.
0: Laughing.
1: <laughs> this show is produced by me with a lot of help from Dr. Santosh and our other co-hosts. Finish, finish. Our theme music is composed by Rachel Leisure. Links, if you'd like to support us spiritually, emotionally, or financially, links to do that
0: or superly or superly
1: <laughs> links to do that are in the show notes, along with links to resources we used in researching this episode. And until pull the rib, <laughs> and until next time, as always, happy travels. Oh.